Hi, I'm Sam, and I'd like to welcome Yorma Kaukinen, guitarist for Jefferson Airplane and Hot Tuna. Yorma is such an incredible guitarist, and I am so lucky to be talking with him right now. Welcome, Yorma. How are you today? I'm great, Sam. How are you? I'm doing just fine. It's a, it's a great, great day, great morning. I'm, I'm pumped. <laughs> well, good. It's a, excuse me. It's, it's, it's very chilly here for some reason, but I am in Southeast Ohio, so that's just the way it is. But it's sunny, and it's great to be talking to you. All right. It's great to talk to you, too. <laughs> All right. So what started you to, like, what caused you to start playing guitar? I think that, you know, I, I think that I was surrounded by music in my family, not guitar music, because nobody played guitar back then. But, you know, in the era that I grew up in, we had kids my age, we took piano lessons until we were about 10 and couldn't stand it anymore. And, and my, you know, both my parents played piano and my dad played the violin. And, and so I was just kind of surrounded mostly by classical music. But interestingly enough, my parents like gospel music too. I grew up in the D.C. area, which there was a lot of like black gospel music back in those days. Probably still is, but I haven't lived there for years. But anyway, um, however, in 1954, one of my buddies got a guitar. And uh, my dad worked for the government. We spent a lot of time overseas and stuff. And I'd been over in Pakistan for a couple of years. And I was like 14 or so when I, got, when I came home, 54 or something like that. And one of my buddies, we were building model airplanes when I left. When I came back, he was playing the guitar. And it just seemed, I just loved the sounds that was coming out of it. And it just seemed so cool. And so uh, he started to show me a couple of things. And, of course, I immediately um, told my dad I wanted a guitar. And, and, of course, he immediately said, basically, no, you're going to have to show that you're serious. So I learned a couple of songs. My dad wound up getting me a guitar and some guitar lessons. And... In the beginning, of course, the lessons had nothing to do with the music that I think I wanted to play. But like anything, with any instrument, there's stuff you got to learn, you know, in order to be able to play it. And so I realized I had to put up with a lot of really silly songs and until I could start learning the stuff I wanted to. Yeah, I, I mean, hey, I guess it worked out for you, right? You're playing some pretty cool stuff now. Well, it did work out, you know, and, and thinking about, you know, the, the era that we live in today is, is not as guitar-centric as an era it was, you know, maybe back in the 50s and 60s. Uh, although... You know, I you know in a normal world I'd be a great grandfather, but in this one I have a daughter that's a senior in high school, and she she plays in a band, and the the the, the young guy that plays guitar in her band, I mean you know he would have been a superstar back in the days when I was his age, you know, and now he's just another one of the guys that happens to be a really good guitar player. So the bar has been raised a lot, you know, but but in the, when I was in high school the guitar wasn't the kind of cool instrument that I'd like to think it is today. Th that was pretty much sax, piano, and drums. But there was a couple of us that played guitar. We were sort of like the weird geeks that scuttled around the hall of the high school and stuff. But uh, we just played guitar all the time and loved it. Wow. Well, I guess it kind of became that cool instrument you're talking about, right? Well, you know, it did. And I guess somebody that's probably more has a more incisive mind than mine is going to figure this out. But, you know, it's a lot easier to carry a guitar around than a piano. <laughs> and plus, you know, I mean, even today, when you're playing the guitar, you just look cool. I mean, that's just how it is. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, that that's, I guess, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to play guitar was uh, the, the cool look. It, it, it's a great instrument. Yeah. I, I totally get it. I totally get it. I mean, and if you want to really get under the skin of the guitar, as, as those of us that play guitar do from time to time, I, I mean, all instruments are really personal. But, you know, however you hold the instrument, however, whatever techniques, however you fret stuff, whatever your right hand does, how much body mass you have, you know, whether, whether, whether you're thin or whether you're heavier, you know, the, the, the way they hold the guitar against your body, all this stuff determines how the guitar sounds. So all of us guitar players, you know, regardless of how quote-unquote proficient we are or not, we'll develop our own sound just because it's such a personal instrument. Yeah, I mean it. It really is. It's it's so cool, and you. I mean, your sound is is so like interesting and like specific to you. You were one of the the early, I guess, rock and roll finger pickers, right? Sure. So I, you know, I just kind of fell into that. You know, you know, Jack and I when we were in high school, we we had a we had a little band together. But again, you know, we were so inept by comparison to you know kids that are what my age was then that are today. I mean, you guys just know more because that's just how it is. But, you know, I came into the Jefferson Airplane not having played an electric guitar since my senior year of high school. And I'd just been spending all this time finger picking. I just fell into the job because Paul Cantner, 
you know, one of the founders of the band was was a friend of mine from San Jose, and he just kind of got me into the band, you know. And I had I had no idea what to do really with a flat pick at that point. I hadn't flat picked for years, even though I started out that way. And you know, I just kind of had to find my way. But one of the things I think that helped me as an artist, as a developing guitar player, is that nobody in the Jefferson Airplane was really a quote unquote professional musician except for Jack and, uh, you know, my buddy, the bass player, and Spencer, who was the drummer. They were, they both had played in like, you know, as union card carrying, you know, as journeyman musicians. The rest of us were all kind of folky, so we didn't have a lot of that. We, we weren't burdened with somebody else's technique by that time. We were able to develop stuff on our own. And as a, as a guy that was fly, finding his own as an electric guitar player, first of all, I was so fortunate to be in an interesting band like Jefferson Airplane, but they never told me what to do because they didn't know what to do either. And we rehearsed relentlessly. We, we played, you know, before the band, you know, really started hitting the road. We were playing like seven, eight hours a day. That's all we did. So there was a lot of time to be able to discover, you know, who we all were as artists. Yeah. Would you say like that lack of a, like being professional musicians, do you think that like really helped define your sound and make it like unique, I guess? I, I, absolutely. I do. Uh, you know, some people might take issue with me, but like, for example, you know, uh, one of one of my really good friends and who was very influential to me as a fingerstyle guitar player was also a great studio player. His name was Steve Mann and he and Mac Rabinac, Dr. John, were like studio cats back in those days. And we were the same age, and I knew him about it, but, but he could also read and do all the stuff that you needed to do to be a studio guy. I didn't have any of those talents, and I really wasn't interested in it. I was very fortunate to be completely happy, you know, just stumbling along my own way. But in answer to, you know, how this little conversation started, I think the fact that we didn't know so much made it easier to sound innovative to other people. Now, one of the, you know, I teach all the time, and one of the things I talk to, to, to students about today when they ask me, do you ever think about writing another song and drop D, et cetera? And I go, well, you never know. I'm, you know, you never know. I went through a drop D period a long time ago, and I wrote a lot of songs in it. But then, then I moved on. To, to play, to write a song as, a, as an innovative writer these days, to be honest with you, it's probably not going to happen to me because now I know too much stuff. Seriously. But back in those days, you know, you kind of knew stuff, and it all sounded good. And, you know, and it sounded, my lack of knowledge sounded innovative to other people. Wow. That yeah, that's really cool that like by by like not knowing all that like theory and all that stuff, you you kind of helped yourself out there. I never really thought of it like that, huh? Yeah, I truly. Now that's not an excuse not to learn stuff, you know. However, you know, I think it's I just think it's easier to be innovative when you're young cuz that's just how it is. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, hey, it worked for you. I you you did quite a quite a great job with with your guitar and Jefferson Airplane and all that stuff. Just kind of sure. magnificent, honestly. Well, thank you. So, you know, the thing about the airplane also, you know, you know, had I had I gotten into a, a straight blue a blues band instead of whatever you want to call Jefferson Airplane psychedelic band, whatever, you know, I probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to be as experimental. But because the writers in that band, Grace Marty and Paul, wrote these great songs. I mean, if you listen to that airplane song, "A Volunteer," we can be together. There's like seven or eight parts to that song, and each part is really different, but somehow it all works works out, you know. And so as a lead guitar player, you know, to be able to find a part that fit in each of those different parts is like learning seven or eight different songs. Mm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those songs are, are really kind of like long complex like like cool. yeah to say the least yeah yeah I, I i remember hearing like your like 20 minute version of wooden ships you 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 guys did live that that one was kind of like ooh, I, I like this <laughs> yeah that's another thing too you know you think about um you know people talk about the whole jam experience and again you know, back in those days when we were doing that, you know, guys like Crosby and Paul and all the, the, that gaggle of songwriters, they were writing a lot of very complex and very long songs. But they also gave guys like me that weren't writing very much back then an opportunity to experiment with the melodies they threw at us, you know. I'm not sure, to be honest with you, I'm not sure that many audiences today would tolerate that kind of experimentation. But, you know... But I don't, you know, I'm not really kind of there anymore. I love to jam and experiment too, but pretty much I say what I've got to say and it's time to move on. But but back in those days, our audiences allowed us to do that. It was such a blessing. They allowed us to fool around. 
not all this, you know, you hear all these tapes that people have floating around. Not all those long jams are great, but some of them are. Yeah. Hey, I mean, you, you gotta be, I guess, careful with, with some of those, like you could, I guess, lose people's attention, but at the same time, you could also rope them in. And I, I gotta say, you're a, that wooden ships jam I heard. That was it. <laughs> well, you know, it's such a great song anyway, you know, and, uh, if I had a if I if I had a guitar in my hand right now, the, the the first chords that Paul showed me that were David Crosby chords, it weren't actually the chords they used in the song later on. They were just so melodic. It's like you know, wow, what am I going to do with this? The other thing is, is going back to the going back to the music <clears throat> that I grew up with, mostly classical music, gospel music, you know, rock and roll, popular stuff, obviously too. But but I just heard so much stuff and world music too, because my folks were into that kind of stuff. I'm not saying that I sat down, well, I'm going to take an Indian raga and turn it into a rock and roll song, because I never did that. A guy like Derek Trucks can do that, because he actually studied that kind of music. But but still, all that stuff was floating around in my brain, and some of it would definitely come out being influenced by that. And so I think it made some of the some of the lead stuff that I was able to figure out with the airplane, you know, certainly interesting from my point of view. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I, I think it's interesting, too. It, it's certainly, gosh, just so cool. And, and you guys played, like, a lot of live stuff i know like of course woodstock everyone talks sure. about it right right well you know if you know yeah everybody talks about woodstock and of course you know it's such an iconic job but it was such a mess you know mm-hmm. as a guy that's that's still working that's been working all my life doing this kind of stuff if i had a job like that today to be like what a terrible job i hope i never get that job again <laughs> but of course it was woodstock um you know which made all the difference in the world but uh, but if you think in that era, that 69 era, the Jefferson Airplane, it's an arguable point, but it was certainly certainly one of the best, definitely live performing bands in the United States at that time. You know, we were hot, we were doing all this kind of stuff, and we were interesting a lot of the time. And, you know, and that's just how it was. I mean, if you listen to the live, the Airplane Live album, Bless Us Pointed Little Head, and I'm not just saying this because... It's my record, you know, but that's a, that's a hot live album. Mm-hmm. And we were lucky we got to record it because, you know, a lot of times your, your best shows are never recorded. You know, nobody will ever know how great you were, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. It, that's actually really cool. My dad was mentioning he, he saw you twice at McCabe's Guitar Store. Um, sure. Yeah, yeah. He was like, I told him I was talking to you. So he was like, oh, that's the, yeah, yeah. I, I saw him. That was, gosh, yeah, yeah. But live stuff is, is really, really cool. Um, And yeah, good, good. You guys, like, you did a, a lot of it and it was quite good. Yeah. So uh, speaking of McCabe, yeah, tell your dad, I said, hey, we'll be, we'll, I play McCabe's uh, not all the time, but very frequently. I love that little venue. But anyway, you know, to me, to, to me, live music is really where the rubber meets the road. You know, working in the studio, I, I doubt that I'm ever going to have a budget to do a studio album like that again. And, and to be honest with you, I really, I don't have a lot of interest in that because I just love the live thing. And I was talking to somebody the other day about, well, what do you, you, you know, as, as a musician that's been active all these years, what is it that, that you're looking for in your music these days? And I go, well, every couple of years I write a song, but I'm not a prolific songwriter. But I'm always messing around with guitar, trying to find out better ways or more interesting ways or other ways to do stuff I've been doing all my life. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned you're you're not really interested in like studio recording. Is that like, why do you think that is? Well, I think one of the things is, uh, I mean, if somebody said, look, I'm going to give you a budget to do a bunch of recording. I, I just, you know, just, a, just as an aside, I just got this, I just put a hi-fi together again for years and, and I got this... Uh, I got this record by Willie Watson, you know, he's a, he's a great singer-songwriter, played with David Rawlings, was in the, the, the Old Crow Medicine Show, all this kind of stuff. And he had a, a, a Willie Watson folk singer volume two produced by David Rawlings. You know, when I listen to, if I got a chance to do an album like that, I, I'd jump at it. No original songs, all folk music, but the very sparse production. I mean, all the instruments sound unbelievable, you know. That's something that might turn me on. I'm not writing a lot of songs right now, and I think to do to do a real studio project today, I would like to have an album's worth of songs. You know, like I said, every now and then I write one. I've got I've got three, maybe three and a half ready, and if I get eight, maybe I'll do a studio record. But I don't have that yet. Mm. Yeah. Well, when you play live, would you say you like do a lot of like older material with like like hot tuna stuff with Jack and, and sure airplane stuff? I mean, yeah. I mean, see, I'm really lucky. I've been I've been in the game a long time, 
and we, I keep I keep songs active that I still like and are fun to play. Now, one of the things that happened in the pandemic, because guys like me were unemployed pretty much for two years, is I got a chance. You know, we have our little fur piece ranch thing out down here in Ohio, and we have a theater and and all this kind of nonsense. And and uh, but all of a sudden we weren't doing anything. So I'm sitting around and I got I started to look at my old catalog, not not just hot tuna, but airplane songs that I could do as a solo song. And Jack came out and spent some time with me. We resuscitated a lot of songs that I hadn't played in decades. And had the pandemic not happened, I might not ever have looked at it again. Point being that I've been able to bring back a lot of songs from different periods of my career that are kind of different, you know. So I have I have a potential of a lot of songs in my repertoire. Now, if I was going to go together to put to make them performance ready and put a show together or to go on the road, and I was going to need some songs that I kind of knew, but I hadn't really played as a performance, I'd want to go back and look at them and, uh, and, and make sure I knew how they went. That being said, I love when neat stuff happens accidentally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's got to be the biggest surprise of live playing. Like, oh, wait a second. Hold on. That works, right? Yeah, right. I mean, and of course, and as, you know, as I'm sure you know, not all those moments are great. But some of them are, and if you're lucky, you'll remember them. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what makes it count, I guess. And you you really had like a lot of lot of great playing moments, like jam sessions and such. Like I I know you played with uh, Janis Joplin, right? That sure. that session came out a few years ago. Yeah. So there's you know the Janis thing was really interesting because when I moved to California in '62, we were all kids, well you know, and I was going to the University of Santa Clara, and the first the first week that I was there. You know, I just moved there. I'd, I'd been living by myself in New York, and all of a sudden I'm in a dorm in an extremely conservative Catholic college. It was really a weird thing to happen, you know. But it's a good thing because because there was a hootenanny, a.k.a. open mic, uh, in town. And I went there, and that night I met Janis Joplin and this guy, Richmond Talbot, a local blues guy. And, you know, and I heard Janis had nobody to, to back her up, and I and I we sort of, like, felt comfortable playing together. And so I just started playing with her. And I realized at that moment that I was in the presence of somebody who was truly, truly a great singer. I'd never personally known a singer who was that good at that point in my life. Because I don't, I was only 21 years old then, you know. So, so the Janice thing was interesting because, you know, we didn't play together all the time. I lived in San Jose, and she lived in San Francisco. And none of us had cars back then. And to take a bus, it's only like 45 miles, but to take a bus literally took all day in wow. those days. So it was a big project to get together, you know. But whenever she would come down the peninsula, uh, the the Bay Area Peninsula, to do something, you know, I'd get the call and I'd get to play her, and it was always a treat. And we're so lucky that uh, that for some reason we made those typewriter tapes, which have now been re-released, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the, the fact everybody documents stuff these days thanks to YouTube, you know. And there was a point when guys like me complained about intellectual property, but you want to know something? It's a great thing that stuff's out there. So you're really like, you're glad that all your, your jam sessions and such, like, I guess, have become immortalized? Absolutely. At this point in my life, absolutely. You bet. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I know, like, a bunch of artists are kind of, like, really protective over over that stuff, but it, it's cool you, you got, like, a, a different opinion. Well, I was there. I mean, I understand it because I was there when it first came out. Well, I don't know. And you start thinking about intellectual property and this and that. And there's a lot to be said for that, you know. I do believe in people getting paid the, the the royalties that they're entitled to, which is I like of the of the streaming music services. I like Tidal the best because they're the guys that play pay their artists more reliably than a lot of the others do. But anyway, uh, yeah, we complained about all that stuff, you know. But at the end of the day, at this point, it's like it just keeps it alive, you know. For example, I was when I was I was resuscitating this. Uh, this song that I did with Hot Tuna called Sleep Song, I don't know, five or six, seven, a number of years ago. And I couldn't fit, you know, and I listened to the record and it had been so many years since I played it, I couldn't figure out how to do it. And like anybody else, I went to YouTube and found a recorded version from the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey, and I learned it from myself. No way. That's so way. cool. That is so cool. Wow. Yeah, it's really neat. You you can just, like, I guess, look at, look at yourself play, like... That must be kind of a weird time capsule. Like, oh, remember that? Like, Well, one of the things I think that's weird, you know, at this point in my life, because I've been doing it for such a long time, is looking at how, you know, because, you know, as players, you know, we, because I've been playing all my life, and you evolve and you learn to do things different ways, et cetera, et cetera. And like we talked at the beginning, the way you do something will determine how it sounds. 
So there are certain aspects of my sound that's changed. I probably notice it more than other people, but anyhow, you know, but, but, you know, to be able to look at some of these recorded things and go, man, I can't believe I did it that way when there's, so, there's such an easier way to do that. But of course, it's going to sound a little different too. Yeah, I guess that's, that's what happens a lot in uh, music these days, right? Like a lot of people sometimes take shortcuts and, you know, that's the whole auto-tune thing. Like, yeah. you couldn't you do know, that. You know, I don't really know much about that stuff. I'm not, people go, do you have a studio? And I go, no, I can't, I can't read manuals and stuff. So I recognize, you know, because I because I listen to, like I said, I've got I've got a teenage daughter and I've got a I've got a son that's in his twenties. So I listen. So thanks to them, I listen to a lot of music I probably wouldn't have listened to otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I recognize there's a lot of stuff that's going on. That's just a different kind of music and auto tune in its. I think in its context, um, it's just another way to make music. You know, it's not something I'm probably going to do because I wouldn't even know what to do with it. You know. <laughs> But you know, time marches on, and that's just how it is. Yeah, yeah, that that's true. I'm, uh, you know, for for better or for worse, right? Like some people are are a big fan of how music's progressed, others aren't. But I'm I'm glad we have like like music from from all over. Like we we can now Absolutely. we can now listen to music from the past what hundred maybe even two hundred years. It's so it's so unbelievable. Cool. I know it's it's fantastic. And you know you know as a guy that again that came up in my time, one of the things that I I find interesting, and I'm sort of like waiting to see how it's going to shake out, is when I was learning the guitar, when I first started to learn how to finger, to play fingerstyle guitar, I was like 20 years old. I'd played the guitar since I was 14 or 15, but not fingerstyle guitar. And uh, my family, my dad was in the service, he was stationed in the Philippines, so I had gone back to spend a year with him and go to school. And I took with me, I was just starting to finger pick, and I took three records with me. I took, uh, there's a, a Riverside recording that's that's a split between Reverend Gary Davis and, and Pink Anderson. I took that one, and uh, and there was a, a Reverend Gary Davis album uh, uh, called Harlem Street Singer, and a 10-inch uh, Brownie McGee, is Folkways LP, just called Brownie McGee. And I took those three records, and that's all I listened to. For like a year and a half period because it's all that i had you know the internet mm-hmm. nobody you know it was another galaxy back then and and so and so i i wasn't swamped and stuff now i'm not critical about having all this stuff because you know like i said i'm i'm surrounded by people that are younger than me and so and watching my daughter's band practice and stuff like that and learning stuff all youtube off youtube i go that's really cool because there it is and you can learn this stuff and you can you can really cover a lot of ground you know that being said a lot of who I became had to do with the fact that I didn't have that much stuff to listen to. And that's not a value judgment. That's just how it was. Yeah, yeah, that's that's neat. So you kind of had like more concentrated, I guess, influences, you'd say? Yeah, so it worked out for me. You know, but that being said, I mean, you know, there's so much great stuff out there today. It's I mean, I don't have to tell you. It's ridiculous. It really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard from some people like back in the day, you, you'd release a record and you'd be competing with the other records that release at right. the same time. And now you release a record and you're competing with or you're competing with every single song ever, which is totally terrifying. It's a, yeah, it's yeah. a different fight. Yeah, yeah. That's the other thing. If you talk about <clears throat> recording projects, you know, back you know back in the day when the airplane recorded, you couldn't make a record unless you had a record deal. And in order to get a record deal, some corporate entity had to believe that you were going to make them a bunch of money. You know, which which made it hysterical that the airplane actually got a record deal. You know, because we were we didn't play well with corporate others. You know, mm-hmm. but but like you said today, I mean, you know, you could you could make a record on your phone in the basement and. And who knows, you know? Yeah, might might go somewhere, I guess. Huh. Hey, who knows? You never yeah, know. Yeah. So you you were saying like you you got to listen to just those three like records. Was that like did those really like define your your playing? You'd say I. You know, I'm not sure I would use the word define my playing because I was in, in those days. <clears throat> I was I was struggling to to get some sort of a technique, and that those were my gateways to getting technique. Now before before I went back to the Philippines to be with my folks, uh, I had been working. I, I went to Antioch College. I was on this co-op job thing in New York. And so I was hanging out with guys. You know, I was a complete non-entity back then, but I met a lot of the older guys like like Dave Van Ronk and all these guys, you know. And I was able to, and Reverend Davis, I got a chance to see him play, and John Lee Hooker. All these guys were still alive and playing then. So I had a chance to hang out and watch these guys 
in person. Today we do something like that on YouTube, but back then I was very lucky. I was in an area when all that stuff was happening. I was just learning, so I didn't really have a style of my own yet. So everything I learned from every from any song contained a bunch of techniques that would become rel relevant to me later. Oh, yeah. So I guess you'd kind of like pick stuff up as you went. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's that's really cool. Well, you, you I guess, like, you... You must have had like a, a lot of practice, I guess, in your your early twenties. Like from going from that, like I guess, flat picking and like strumming guitarist to like a, an advanced right. finger picker. How'd you how'd you get that much better? Well, because it's really all I did for a number of years. Mm. It's it's pretty much all I did. I mean, you know, I I stayed I stayed in. I stayed in college until I graduated, largely because I didn't want to get drafted and go to Vietnam, you know. And uh, I got, I got my, my bachelor's degree in sociology, which in those days was the last line of study that a person who didn't really want to study could bullshit his way through, <laughs> except for statistics, but that's another story. <laughs> really, all I did except trying not to get drafted was play guitar. Wow. So how many hours would you say you played, like, per day? Oh, Seriously, I'd say four to five, easy, maybe wow. more. That's, I mean, it's really, it's really all I did. That's amazing. Yeah, I, hey, I wish I had that much time to, to play guitar. Yeah, exactly. I mean, see, see, I had the time. I understand. Believe me, you know, you know, you know. Again, I use my daughter as an example because, because I, because I watch her. She's very talented, you know, and she could do all these things too. She spends a lot of time with music, but for some strange reason, she's also got an unbelievable GPA and she's already been accepted to like eight or nine colleges, you know, and that's because she doesn't fritter away time playing music and she actually studied. I get it, believe me. Yeah, yeah. Good for her. Yeah, yeah, totally. yeah that's... Wow, yeah, geez, like that—that that must have been so great to just be able to to play that much. I'm I'm jealous here. That that'd be great. I, right. I listen, and if I was you, I'd be jealous too. I mean, looking back at it, it's how how much better does it have to get? Seriously, if you love to play the guitar, and somehow you know, the other thing was is like, especially when I was in Santa Clara, is I started teaching guitar, <clears throat> and I was I was a really successful teacher. I had all kinds of students, you know, and so I was actually supporting myself teaching guitar, not performing because people, we weren't being, getting hardly any money to play, but I was basically getting a chance to teach new stuff as I learned how to do it. It was an exciting time. Yeah, that is really exciting. You, I guess you, you must have learned a lot from just just the teaching aspect, right? And I think uh, teaching is certainly, and, and I'm still teaching all these years, right? it oh, makes wow. me a better player. And and I'm sure and I was surrounded back in those days. There's just like my, I mentioned that my friend Steve Mann. If you get a chance, you need to check out Steve Mann live at the Ash Grove. Okay. You can probably just watch it on YouTube. It's it's you know if you it's a it's a nice record and or CD to own if you get a, if you, it's hard to find, mm -hmm. but you're gonna hear a guy playing incredibly a lot a lot. There's a lot of you know, again the bar is always getting raised. A lot of great fingerstyle guitar players these days, monsters, but. In 1962, 63, there weren't many of them, and he was one of them. Wow. Well, lucky you for, for getting to know him and, like, Totally, guess, totally. Yeah, working with him. Wow, that's <clears throat> that's really cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, getting to getting to play guitar, get better at guitar. That's that's such a such a lucky thing to to do. Like, it's so so cool. You you had that in your life, and you you still do have that in your life. Like, that's right. that's amazing. You know, and as a, as a young guitar player back then, you know the fact. You know, you, you know, I you talk about what are your goals when you're, you know, when you're 19, 20, whatever, you know, when you're a kid, what are your goals? My goal pretty much always was just to play the guitar. You know, I, I stayed in college because my parents expected it and I kept me from being drafted. I don't think I gave it that much thought, you know, and also my dad gave me a little bit of money every month and that kind of helped too. But but all I really wanted to do was play the guitar. And, and you know, somebody goes, well, what were your goals? I'm not sure the goal figured prominently in my world back then. But I think that, you know, uh, this little local music store that I worked in back then, the Benner Music Company, <clears throat> I think if I had... If, if the airplane hadn't happened, if all this stuff hadn't happened, I probably would have had a little music store and just played locally, and I probably would have been just as happy. But I got lucky, and a lot of stuff happened, and you and I are talking about it. Yeah, wow. that That's really neat. So you'd say, like, you'd still be in music even if you, you didn't do stuff with airplane? Absolutely. Wow. No question about it. That, that's great. Yeah, yeah. I... I I went to to one of those like funny music stores like a, a few months ago. I, I I was buying my my birthday present guitar. Um, What'd you get? I got a '69 Yamaha acoustic. I think it was like a red label. I'm pretty sure is what what it's called. Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a lot of fun. Um, but 
It was just such such an experience. Yeah, and I, I went to McCabe's, so so that's um. Of course you did. So I still have my first guitar. I, I paid a hundred bucks for a Gibson J50 and '59. No way. But anyhow, so don't ever get rid of that that birthday guitar. I won't. No what happens. So anyway, so this guy. So so this guy David Flamang out in Iowa. It's in it's in it's in he lives in Green, Iowa. It's an unincorporated town is building these really beautiful guitars. Mm. And so I've been playing Flamang guitars about the last six or seven years, and they're not cheap. But when you got nothing to do, go to his website and check him out because he's really building the stuff, the good stuff. You know? I'll do that. I'll do that. That's and really cool. I think cool. that, that uh, you know, Yamaha builds great guitars. I've got a friend that we've been, we've been friends for over half a century. He got, he got a Yamaha version of a J Gibson J50 a really long time ago. And I remember he got it for next to nothing. And it was a great guitar then, and it's a great guitar now. Well, hey, seeing as you got the guitar there, would you be interested in, in playing anything? Or? Sure. Um, yeah. Let me uh, grab a couple of finger picks here. Oh, boy. That's really funny. You know, I started out, if I had to do it over again, maybe I'd learn to play without picks, but it's too late in the game for that. <laughs> so... So here, you know, my buddy Jack just discovered this uh, uh, this old tape of him and me. Uh, he taped me in 1960, summer of 1960, when I'd been finger picking for about I don't know three or four months, and I heard this vision of this song called "Trouble in Mind" that I that I had learned back then, and I'd forgotten it, of course, and so I had to relearn it. Man, I can't believe I knew all that stuff. So anyway. Thank you so much. Gosh, that was really good. Yeah, that was so cool. Thank you. Wow. I apologize for the barking chihuahua, but what are you going to do? Oh, no worries. Yeah, yeah. I can't let that one out. <laughs> I, I got a small dog myself. I, I He's about the loudest thing in the world. So I, I yeah, totally, totally. No, it's, it's the... F we got the big dog and the little dog. I don't know. Yeah, it, it's the funniest thing. Whenever I, I play viola, right? Whenever I, I play, he like howls like a wolf. He's like, ooh, it, it's hilarious. It's Yeah, there, there's something in the in the vibrations that gets them going yeah. they hear yeah yeah anyhow yeah so i mean you know the, the ongoing you, you know to me and and this is really true i'm i'm just as in love with these silly things today as i was you know when i was your age it's just it's just never gotten old to me and uh and that's just how it is so in the time that Jefferson Airplane played a lot, uh, there was a lot of like protest in music and it was kind of the, the heat of the hippie movement, right? So, so how do you get your, like, your point across in the music you made? I think that, you know, there's so much activism happening back then and I don't mean to 
to uh, to trivialize, you know, whatever drama, political drama happens in our world today. But back in those days, for some reason, it seems as if we could make a difference. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, and in our group, the, the people that you, you should really talk to about this, many of them, sad to say, are not with us. But Grace, Paul, and Marty were extremely uh, active, both intellectually, verbally, et cetera, et cetera, with all this kind of stuff. Uh, Jack and Spencer and I tended, I mean, we certainly, you know, we certainly took a, you know, did our protests about the war in Vietnam and, and stuff like that, but well, we just weren't as vocal about uh, about opinions. Now, back in those days, especially with the San Francisco bands, but certainly not only them, you know, so many of them, so much of the music was actually tied up to social activism, and that's just how it was. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the, the music that was popular on the radio in the time was, you know, was protest music. Yeah, yeah, I, that it's really. Uh, I I didn't realize that only like half of your band was was um really into the the whole protest thing. That that's kind of kind of neat. Um, it, it certainly seemed like such a such a way to write a song, right? Such a, a passionate thing to I guess to do. Right, and you know, and and everybody was so you know the music and the art. And again, I can only really speak for San Francisco because you know I was young, and that's where I lived at that time. But but the art, whether it was poetry, whether it was uh, spoken word, whether it was graphic arts, painting, music, whatever, was just incredibly tied to what was going on at the time. And I'm not sure that anybody really thought about it specifically in that light. It's just how it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that's neat. I guess it wasn't wasn't entirely intentional. I, I didn't I didn't realize that, huh? <laughs> Well, I mean, to think about, I mean, think about, you know, whatever world any of well, whatever world you live in. I mean, you just accept the way things are. Somebody else at some time might go, "Wow, man, that was really neat." Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, that the that time was really neat, right? The the '60s were were quite a time for music and everything else. It, it certainly was, and again, you know. I guess I, I guess guys my age kind of have to be dangerous weighing in on this because I don't mean to say there isn't good stuff going on today because there's immense amounts of quality, you know, art and music, et cetera, happening today. But but again, in that time, for some unknown reason or, for, or just the way it was, all the art and all the music that seemed to be progressive at that time was tied up with, with, with political realities. Yeah, yeah. So, so was there like a time that you noticed that kind of fading out, or did it just like suddenly disappear? I, I'm not sure that it really has disappeared, but I don't see it having the sort of global weight that it did back then for whatever reason. I think that you know, as the as the war in Vietnam wound down, I mean, uh, you know, the the, the Vietnam War for Americans of my age and specifically back then was such a, you know, such, such an enfant terrible. I mean, it was just, you know, so many people our age were were dying, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we're really kind of tied up with that stuff. And when we got in, we started getting into the 70s, you know, by that time, um, you know, most of us in our late 20s, early 30s, way beyond being able to be drafted or any of that stuff it kind of took it kind of took the immediacy off it i think for some of us mm-hmm. yeah it must have been a, a weird thought like it, it could be me next right like you you never know Oh, absolutely oh no there's no question about it and you know i, I only sort of half joke about it you know people talk about you know you, you went you finished college and i said yeah i went to college and i and you know and I, I would only be half humorous by saying part of the impetus to staying in college because I was like a six and a half year college student was to avoid getting drafted. Yeah, that that's really neat. I, I guess you got to do what you have to do, and uh, totally. an education isn't isn't the worst way to 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 do that. <laughs> how true, how true. You know, and for me also, you know, just just as a postscript on that, the the latter part of my education, the university when I went to the University of Santa Clara, that's where I met all the guys in the airplane and stuff like that. So in a way, it changed my life profoundly. Yeah, well, well how do you meet them? Well, uh, it's it's a it's 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 just once again it's just one of those things. So so I wound up at the University of Santa Clara was an incredibly conservative Catholic university Jesuit school, and the year that I went there in nineteen because I I got there in, in uh, nineteen sixty uh, trying to think that sixty wow I got there in sixty two so so the year that I got there was the first year that it was co-ed and the older college students like the like the guys were seniors were upset because they were women on campus that sort of upset their you know and by that time I had already I you know I came from Antioch College I'd lived by myself you know 
I was not only comfortable, I enjoyed about being around women, and I thought these guys had lost their minds. But anyway, so it's a very conservative school. So the, the, within the first couple of weeks that I was there, I was wandering around and realizing at that moment, you know, it's hard to be weird these days, but it was easy back then. And I realized that I was probably the weirdest guy in school. And I'm walking along, and I saw a guy coming the other other way, a guy my age, but he had a beard. Now, guys, you know, everybody's got facial hair these days, or many people do. But back in those days, it was it was almost like a like a beatnik statement of some sort. I saw this guy coming walking towards me, wearing flip flops, board shorts, a t-shirt, and a beard. And I figured. And we looked at each other and we realized we're going to need to get to know each other. So his name was Bob Kinsey. He just passed away recently, actually. He was a head of the marine biology department of the University of Hawaii at the end of his life. Anyway, so we started talking. We both liked music. And he said, there's this guy that was at Santa Clara last year that was into folk music like you. He dropped out of school. You're going to need to meet him. And that guy was Paul Cantor, one of the founders of the airplane. And so we went, we, we jumped in uh, my buddy's car. I remember he had a surfboard sticking out of the trunk, all that stuff back there. And we went to Santa Cruz and there was Paul. He was kind of like a surfer dude back then, living in a beach shack on the beach in Santa Cruz. And, you know, we became friends and one thing led to another. And that's basically, that's, you know, when he moved to San Francisco and he and Marty started the airplane, he, he gave gave me the call to be the guitar player in the band. Wow. that That's really, it, yeah, that's funny that you guys met at, in school, I guess. Well, I guess two of you met in school. It is really funny, yeah. Yeah, you, you don't expect that when you think of like Jefferson Airplane, where'd they meet? No, yeah. you don't. But, but, but the other thing was is that, you know, like Paul, you know, he's such an interesting guy because he had gone to, he was from some, a really sort of a rigorous Catholic family. He'd gone to all these prep schools and all this kind of stuff. So when he finally broke out of the mold, it kind of explains everything. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, gosh, that's so neat. Yeah, huh. <laughs> yeah, well, let's see. So Grace joined the band later on, right? Like a year or so sure. after. So, so uh, when, when I got in the band, Signe Tolly Anderson was, was the singer in the band uh, that they, they had found. Uh, Paul, Paul's uh, goal, even before he met Marty, was always to have a band that had multiple vocal harmonies, three-part harmonies at the very least. And so, and I, I don't really know who knows New Signy, but she was like, you know, on the folk scene in San Francisco. And so when Paul got together with Marty, when I when they had me come up to try out for the band, Signy was already in the band. It was really important for them to have a female voice, harmony voice there. You know, and, and Sig did a great job with the, with the thing. She was more like what in those days we would have called a commercial folk singer, sort of like in the Peter Paul, Mary Bain, stuff like that, Chad Mitchell trio. Um, but anyhow, so, you know, because Sig was probably the only grown-up in the band, she got married and got pregnant, wanted to raise a family, and, and being a rock and roll chick on the road didn't seem to make a lot of sense to her. So so she, she told us that she was going to, you know, move on with her life, etc. Now, by that time, Grace had already started with the Grace Society, and, you know, You'd really do it. It's next to impossible to get an interview with, with Grace. She doesn't, she has no like, you know, internet presence or any this kind of stuff. And, but, but were you to get together with her, she'd tell you stuff like, we started, we looked at the Jefferson airplane and the rock and roll thing. It just looked like fun. So we started a band, but they had a lot of talent also. And so I remember we went to see, when we went to see the Grace Society, Grace just had incredible stage presence. I mean, here's somebody that had never been like a, really had been a musician before that. I mean, you know, like most people of her, you know, of her sort of like upper middle class kind of stuff, she'd probably taken piano lessons and all this kind of stuff like most of us did. But but I don't think she'd ever really thought about getting into a band, but she just had something. If you see clips of the Great Society with her in the band, you'll get exactly what I mean. And and we saw her sing and, and we always, we, we were huge fans of her in the band. And when Signe said that she was going to move on, you know, we immediately thought, people go, would you think about Janice? I'd known Janice for a couple of years by that time. And, and Janice was, you know, before she became the rock and roll diva that she became, she was a blues singer and the airplane's not a blues band, you know? So, so as hugely a talent as she was, you know, I think we pretty much realized she was not the right person for the band. We needed somebody to do harmony and all this kind of stuff. And Grace got the call and it was like, you know, how lucky can you get? Because... 
you know, we wound up having what, in, in my opinion, is certainly one of the great female voices of my time. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more uh, there. I, I remember a few weeks ago, it was like National Women's Day. My English uh, class, we always have a question like favorite historical, I guess, or favorite women besides your mom, of course, because... Of course. Yes, everyone would say my mom or my grandma. So Grace hey. was my answer there. So I... I, I good, good answer. I no, agree no with you, yeah. No disrespect to your mom. <laughs> yes, yes. No, that that was a you know she's she definitely has quite a voice it's it's very powerful and makes and something with... else to think about back then also is that female singers in that time tended to be in a more supportive role backup singers or or, or female groups etc like that you know for somebody to become a front person for and, and pretty much a male I mean it's not true anymore thank goodness but back in those days the rock and roll thing was, was pretty much male dominated you know and and Grace had Grace and Janice changed all that. Yeah, so do you think it was kind of like a statement to have a female lead singer, or was it just how it happened? Well, I mean, in retrospect, it's a statement, but in reality, it's just how it happened. Mm Mm-hmm. So, so you you mentioned that was like really important to the sound. That was was sure. that like the intent from from day one? It's like we have to have a woman singing, or absolutely. And and again, that was you know because you know I cut school the week they taught harmony, so that uh, that's not something I could weigh in on. But it always was for Paul and Marty. It was absolutely important to have a female voice. Yeah, well, well, it turned it turned out all right, right? Everything everything worked out, yeah. and the the sound you guys had was just absolutely incredible. I I'm a I'm a huge fan of it so the other thing you know uh, thanks for that we have the, we appreciate we appreciate that you know every now every now and then i'll i'll go back and listen to some airplane stuff normally i don't listen to myself but but every now and then i do one of the one of the things i like to listen to from time to time is the version of uh we can be together on volunteers and the vocal heart first of all it's, it's a song that's got like seven parts nobody writes seven part songs anymore and 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 Paul and Marty and Grace's approach to vocal harmony was was so non-traditional, you know. I mean, some of it is very traditional harmony because harmony is harmony, but there was a lots of really adventuresome kind of stuff that was not like typical, you know, gospel harmony stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I was I was listening this morning. I was driving to school with my mom in the car, and and I was listening to to Jefferson Airplane because I, I like to I don't know listen to listen to my interviews music. Um, Right. beforehand yeah and I, I i was hearing like some really cool chords and i was like wow yeah this is they knew right. what they were doing and so the other end for you know for a lead guitar player you know people talk about um with me uh about how i learned the, the kind of stuff i played obviously you know all of us that are artists on any level we bring to the table our experience you know i mean i because my family was so eclectic of the musical taste I, i've always listened to a lot of different kinds of stuff but uh but the thing is is that is like like Cantner, especially because he wrote so many songs and as the rhythm guitar player you know the, the, the rhythm section of any band kind of like defines what's going on you know his his choice of chords and stuff like that because he was buddy with Crosby so he didn't use a lot of the really weird tunings that, that Crosby developed over the years but he used but he was into that kind of stuff so so he brought stuff to the table that was was it was not blues band stuff it was not traditional pop stuff it was really interesting in a lot of different kinds of modes that that much popular music at that time just wasn't using yeah well I I guess when you listen to an airplane song you can definitely tell that that someone somewhere in that band was was thinking something pretty cool because it just yeah, is absolutely it's, it's so different from I mean specifically like the music now it's it, it there's almost there are barely any similarities it's just so incredible right. you know that's you know i i've got a i've got a we've got a daughter who's pretty probably pretty close to your age and uh how old are you by the way 16 yeah well, our daughter's 17 anyway same no she's not she's six well she'll be she'll be 17 she'll be 17 holy cow <laughs> yeah thanks for clarifying that vanessa Sorry. so so you listen to a lot of stuff so so the, there's a lot of really you know, um, sophisticated, really complex harmonies. I mean, you know, music's always moving on. But I think one of the things that sort of invited some of the inventiveness of my time is the fact that it was guitar-centric music. So, and the guitar brings a lot of interesting stuff to the table, you know. Again, like I said, Paul's not a blues guitar player, so he didn't use any of those kind of like traditional blues chords that most of us would use when we play blues. That just wasn't his thing. He also, you know, if you think about him and and David Crosby and some of their buddies down in L.A., 
they were constantly using tunings to fit whatever song they were writing. I don't think that they, a lot of times I think Paul just designed tunings on his 12 string because he had an idea for a song. So, you know, and we, you know, guys like me talk about this a lot. A lot of the inventiveness that artists do when they're young is because they just don't know any better, you know? And over the years, I've learned so much about music in a more traditional sense that there's, and I, I look at some of the stuff I wrote when I was here, I go, wow, that's pretty neat. I would have never done that today because now I know too much stuff. But I was not, I was sorely unburdened by, you know, rules and stuff like that. It's easy to be inventive when you don't know the rules you're going to break anyway. Yeah. That that's really I I guess it makes sense that um that because if, if you know like too much theory know too much of all that stuff I guess your songwriting's probably pretty rigid and like predictable yeah, in, in a lot of ways in a lot of ways now you know it's funny while uh, while I was uh, you know waiting for this interview to, to come online today I was listening to some stuff on title I I love the title service because they you can throw anything at them and they've got it. So I was listening to some Nancy Griffith stuff today, and I was listening to uh, From a Distance, uh, and and it's a hard life wherever you go. Really interesting kind of stuff, you know. And if you if you think about it, if if you look at the personnel, and you know, From a Distance is a Julie Gold song, you know, and Bette Midler had a huge hit with it, of course. But so I'm listening to this, you know, Nancy was sort of like a folk alt country singer back then. And she's got these great people playing in her session like Mark O'Connor and Jerry Douglas and all these huge, you know, acoustical instrument giants and stuff like that. And I'm listening to this arrangement. I'm going, man, it's just like, you know, if, if you didn't have, it's just a thing of the time. If you didn't have access to those kind of people and the vision they brought to the table, your recordings wouldn't sound like that. Yeah, so you, so you think the the musicianship, like the the people you had, that that definitely plays like a, a huge role. Oh, absolutely, uh, totally, absolutely. And you know, the other thing too is like I, I have a friend that uh, that I that I work with here that that's a really fine musician, and he's he you know he's he's never really had a a band that stayed together, and he's always talking about yeah I'm going to get together and. I'm going to write some songs. I'm going to hire all these people. And and that's, many people do that, you know. But there's, there's a thing when you get the right people that you're playing with, whether it's only a session or whether you're actually playing in a band, where the chemistry just makes the magic happen. And, and you can't, it's really difficult to define, but you'll know when you hear it. Yeah, yeah, huh. I, I guess, I, I don't know, um, I, I listen to a lot of Dylan as well, and, like, I guess that defines the difference between, like, Blonde on Blonde and, like, another side is you've got, like, that incredible instrumentation there. Yeah, I mean, and that's such a great example. Like, I'm, uh, my buddy John Hurlbutt and I, he, he works with me at the ranch. We've been friends for a really, really long time. We did a couple albums together called The River Flows with just him and me acoustic, live, no editing, and we're getting ready to do another thing, and he's a huge Dylan fan, so he brings all these odd Dylan songs um, to the table that I probably... Even though I love Dylan, I just never dug into it like him. One of the songs we're doing today is the song, I Remember You. I just write these great songs. Now, a lot of them, there are many of his songs don't resonate with me that much, but a lot of them do. But Dylan's a really, once again, a really interesting cat. I mean, if you listen to that first record where it's pretty much just him, and then as he goes through these different phases of the music he's interested in, the, the, the session guys he's able to bring together to play and stuff like that, I mean, it's an incredible musical journey. Yeah, it's just it's fantastic how how so many different people can can really just Agreed. change how how a song works. Yeah. Well, I was meaning to ask. Um, the other day I was reading an article and I I noticed uh, something that the the two of us have in common. There, we're we're both Jewish. How is yes. that? How is that impacted? Like your? I knew I liked you. <laughs> yeah. Well, we. Well, that that's that's an, that's an interesting thing. Are, are both your parents Jewish or just yes, your mom? Yes, yes, both. Okay, so in my case, it's just my mom. But uh, so so I'm a second generation American. My my uh, my mom's family came over from Russia around around 1901, something like that. I mean, think about this. My my grandfather was born in the 1880s. Think about that for a second. It's mind boggling, <laughs> even to me. Yeah, that's wow. <laughs> but any, but anyhow, so. So their families had come over and they'd settled in. This is an interesting, when you got nothing to do, check this out. At Ellington, Connecticut, Windsor Locks, Connecticut, there's a huge Orthodox Jewish community that raised tobacco. And my, and, and, and my, both sides of my, you know, my grandfather and my grandmother, their family came over and they had these tobacco farms. When I was a kid, I went up there. The reason I know how to walk on stilts is because when they harvest tobacco, they, uh, they, they, they spear the stalks on, on laths 
and then they hang them upside down and then they walk on stilts and hang them up in the barn and I was there one summer I thought I was working but I was probably just getting in the way but I did learn how to walk on stilts that summer anyway so so my great-grandfather was was like an Orthodox rabbi and when he was a kid he actually he and his friends actually built this little shul in Ellington Connecticut look it up sometime it's interesting that being said if my grandfather had not married my grandmother, he probably would have been a practicing Orthodox Jew all his life. But my grandmother was an incredible rebel. She would have been a hippie in another in another era. And so even though she was incredibly Jewish, she disliked organized religion completely. Mm-hmm. I mean, she, she would go to anarchist meetings. She knew Emma Goldman, all this kind of weird you know, stuff that would get you in political trouble today if you're doing that kind of stuff. And so my grandparents spoke Yiddish and Russian around the house all the time when they didn't want us to know what was going on. And it worked, of course. (laughs) You know, my grandfather was just, he's one of these overachieving guys. He can read and write Aramaic. I mean, all this kind of weird stuff in the family. You know the deal. If if people in a Jewish family, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, you probably can't see it, but I don't know if you can... I don't know if you can see the matcha up there up on top of the fridge. Oh, yeah. Passover's coming up. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so 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 that's an interesting thing. So I'm, I'm not sure that non-Jews get this, but there is something about, about expressing oneself through art, having art being a huge important of your life that just seems to me to be incredibly Jewish, but, but that's kind of like all that I know. My father's family was Lutheran, but they were completely agnostic on any level, so... So basically, growing up, especially because I, you know, I was a kid during the Second World War, and so I lived with my grandparents. I was surrounded by by the Jewish community, and I grew up. I grew up in the D.C. area. Did you ever see that movie Avalon? I haven't. Okay, you got to check it out sometime. It's about a Jewish family in Baltimore that's kind of like the same age that I am. Anyway, when you see this movie, there's a scene where they go to the beach. There's all these, all these like. Everybody's sort of, they're all dressed in black, so it's all sort of an, they all look the same age, regardless of what age they are. And the black cars and the tablecloths and all that stuff. That was my beach experience growing up as a kid. I saw that movie and went, wow, there it is, you know. Oh, anyway, no way. Yeah, so, so it's an interesting thing. So anyway, so, uh, you know, I, I stay in touch with a lot of my family, even though, you know, all my immediate family's been gone for years. And, you know, the thing about being being Jewish in America, I don't have to tell you, it, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. You know, whether you're a practicing Jew or you just identify as Jewish, it's something that non-Jews just don't get. So check this out. So... You know, I, we live we live in Athens, which is a, a college town in southeast Ohio. And our, our local Hillel, it's kind of like we don't really have a rabbi right now, but we did for a while. She moved to Pittsburgh. So our rabbi was not only a woman, but she had a tattoo on her ankle. Wow. <laughs> That's how progressive our little shul was. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I, I definitely, yeah, I have a lot of um, women tattooed rabbis, I guess, in, in my, my congregation. So yeah, awesome. yeah, yeah, that's gosh, that's really cool. Yeah. So, so how, let, let's see, I, I've been meaning to ask as like a, a starter ruppish guitar player here, how, how do I improve? Right? How do I, how do I get better? So, so what, what, what when you play what what do you look for when you play um i mean what what's your what's your like personal musical zone i mean like like for me you know when i was coming up um i started with the with the acoustic guitar and even though i messed with electric guitar and when i was in high school with jack because we had a band uh i didn't i never really well we didn't understand some of the possibilities electric guitar had back then so so to me the acoustic guitar has always told me what to do and i got involved in you know, a lot of this gospel stuff like Reverend Gary Davis and just like the big folk scare and finger style stuff. So that kind of directed my life. And it's kind of who I am, excuse me, in some levels today anyway. So, so when, first of all, do you play acoustic more or electric more? Acoustic. Okay. So, um, do you play with your fingers or a pick? Um, mostly fingers. Okay. Do you wear picks or no? I tried it once, haven't haven't been able to, to figure it out. So okay, well we'll get to that in a minute. It doesn't mm-hmm. really matter. But so so you know if if we were wound up in a room together and you had a guitar, and I said and I put you on the spot as people do when they when this opportunity happens, and I said play something. What would you play? I'll say the the Woody Guthrie song Deportee. Oh, great song, good choice. Uh, what key do you play it in? I'm guessing it would be a C song. A C. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Okay, well then the song's probably in the key of C. Anyway, okay. 
I'll, so all this theory stuff, you don't need to know that stuff in mm -hmm. order to play. It's just we. The only reason we need to know any of that stuff is so we can talk about it. Yeah. You know, it's much easier for sitting in the same room holding a guitar together. Anyway, so um, so so I guess you know, for me, I just fell in love with a, with a style of music that required a bunch of technique. And the good news for me was when I was learning, because I was very fortunate. I was, uh, you know, when I was at Antioch College, I, I lived in an off-campus house. And this guy, Ian Buchanan, that really opened the doors for that to me, so was very patient with me at a time when most guys were as good as him would, wouldn't have given me a second look. Changed my life in a lot of ways. But anyway, um, you know, I, I guess it really is, learning the guitar is like music specific. So it kind of depends on what you're into. You hear something that you like. Um, uh, and like, for example, my daughter plays in a band and her boyfriend just started playing guitar and then what we talked about, I said, I'd be more than happy to show you anything that I know. But then I realized that learning, especially when you're just learning stuff, it's so music specific. And if you're not like into the music that I play, there's, then I really can't help you that much. Mm. So we find a guy, that, a guy that can pick the songs he likes and teach him. I think the best way for me, in my opinion, is find a song that you like, you know, and if you can't figure it out yourself, have somebody that knows how to do it, teach you or give you some insights into it. Um, I think one of the things that's really important from a technical point of view is what you do with your right hand. You know, like, like you know, those of us that, that spend a lot of time teaching guitar say your left hand is what you know, but your right hand is who you are because that's how you sound, whatever you do with your right hand. So, so for me, um, hang on a sec. I'm, I always have my pocket full of picks because I learned to play with picks and I can't really play without them. Mm. So, so I'm a I'm a three finger picker. See, that's this guy here, and uh, and as a result, because of the way I hold the, the guitar, the, I never play with these two fingers. Many people do, I don't. They just they're just a support on the face of the guitar. And you know, when you play your guitar, like when you play closer to the bridge, it's twangy sounding and it's more mellow sounding when you get up towards the primary harmonic, etc. So anyway, as a result of the fact that I use the three that I'm using three things. There's a lot of like triplet figures in my music because I play with three fingers. Um, it's, it's, it's influenced the way that I sound. My sound doesn't require more than three fingers. And when I'm teaching guitar, I tell people, if you use your, your third finger or your fourth finger, depending on how you're counting, uh, I can't help you because I don't use it for anything. The other thing for me, too, is that I've been doing this for so long, is these fingers, three fingers are really strong. If I had to pick with these fingers here, they wouldn't be as strong because I just have I've never really used them that way. Yeah. So if you're going to play with picks, and you don't have to, if you're going to play with picks, my approach is to wear the, is to wear my thumb pick very close to the first joint up here so that the stroke of my thumb, I don't know if you can see this, mm -hmm. so the stroke of my thumb is not coming from this joint here. It's really coming from back here in my wrist. So it's almost like playing playing rhythm with a flat pick, this thumb going back and forth like that. And then, then whatever the, whatever required with my fingers. And the other, the other thing too is like is like when you're learning, you know, is is everybody everybody's got different ways of doing stuff, and there's really no like right or wrong thing with a guitar, which is why it's a, such a cool mm -hmm. instrument. You know, try to try to try to stay tuned in. There's stuff, some stuff you just got to kind of have to learn, but stay tuned into what makes sense to you as a player. And if you have a good teacher, they'll stay tuned in with that and not try to force you into their box. If mm -hmm. that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I've mostly just been doing like my myself because I I guess I started in COVID or whatever. But yeah, that's yeah. Well, that's not listen. It, you know, listen, you guys. You know, my daughter and her friends are learning stuff off YouTube all the time, and, I, and it's awesome because they really learn it. So you have opportunities. <clears throat> right on your computer to do stuff that we, we would have had to know somebody back in those days. So that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, well, Hey, it, it is really, really great to be able to, I guess, look up chords, look up tabs, whatever it may be. Absolutely. It's, it's a, a privilege. <laughs> now, now just, th this is just my opinion. Not everybody agrees with me. I don't read tabs, so I can't really weigh in on it except cause I didn't learn that way. Anything that helps you learn is a good thing. I'm all for it. I used to be sort of dismissive of tab. I'm not dismissive of anything that helps you learn anymore. However, keep in mind that tab is just what the person who wrote the tab heard. Mm -hmm. You know, and if they're not the person that wrote the song, it may or may not be actually correct which may or may not be important to you if it sounds good. But but try not to get married to Tab. You know, if you, you use it to learn something and then get put it away and see where you go yourself. 
Okay, okay. So you like kind of improvise a little bit, figure it well, out. Well, I mean, if not necessarily improvise, but you're going to make it your own. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, regardless of how much you know or don't know how to play at any given moment, you've still got that artist lurking inside you. And, you know, as you learn more stuff. And listen, I've been I've been playing for a really long time and I'm learning stuff all the time. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's that's really neat. I guess your your music education never stops, right? As as never. long as you're playing. Yeah, there's always something. Wow. Yeah. Well, okay. the other thing is is do you when you play your acoustic guitar, do you have a pickup on it? No, I don't. That's not a bad thing. I've you know, if you don't play out yet, you don't need a pickup on your guitar. If you start to, you know, once you've learned a couple songs, if you get a chance to go to an open mic or a hootenanny, as we used to say back in the day, um, you may want to plug in, but that's a, that's another can of worms altogether. And, and, and if it ever comes up and you want to talk about it, let me know. Because when we, you know, when me and Jack or me and my boy, when we play these days, we plug in all the time because mm-hmm. you kind of have to to get the volume up in a house and stuff like that. Okay. And playing a plugged-in guitar, is it's, it's physically... It's a little bit of a different dynamic. I wouldn't worry about it right now. Okay, okay. Yeah, no, I, I uh, I'm part of the the little music team at our, our temple, so so I, I I guess I kind of play around a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, but b- before we lost our rabbi, I used to play at the kids Shabbat. Really, that's that's <laughs> great. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, huh? Yeah, music is just it's so cool how you can keep keep playing and keep doing and yeah, just do I mean, your it's, thing. you know, it's it's such a, it's such a universal emotional language, you know. Oh. Oh, for sure and and interestingly enough uh i tend i tend i'm really fond of like female singer songwriters i mm. think because 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 women's insight into emotions not always but tends to be so much more multi-dimensional than men's as a rule you know and uh and so people go, what do you listen to? Do you listen to Billy Strings? And I go, no, I, I've seen his videos. He's a fantastic guitar player, but I'm honestly, and I, I'm not dismissive of him. He's a great, one of the great guitar players alive, no question about it. And if I went to one of his shows, I'd love the show because it looks like it's really entertaining. But in terms of sitting down and listening to stuff, uh, I really like singer-songwriters, good singer-songwriters. Like I just got this uh, this Mary Chapin Carpenter album. It's a couple years old, but it's new to me. Um, called uh, uh, Dirt in the Stars, between the dirt and stars it's a double album great singer great writing great playing but it, but it, but but you hear the songs not the great playing if you know what i mean mm-hmm. so when i listen to when i listen to a song these days in the old days i'm listening to the guitar player what can i learn what's going on now if i'm going to listen to a professional recording <coughs> i presume that the guys and gals that are playing are professionals because they made a professional recording i want to see what the singer has to say okay yeah yeah that's that's really neat i guess you can um i yeah i I guess the, the, the play into emotions is very important there. Yeah, I mean, it just communicates things so well. And not just lyrically, too. I mean, they're, they're, I mean, you know, you listen to something, there's certain sounds, you know, that are really interesting. And, and speaking of that, if you listen to, uh, like, like uh, I this one of my buddies played mandolin with me uh, for a number of years, uh, Barry Mitterhoff, and he, uh, he played in a couple of klezmer bands and stuff like that. And at some point... He he taught me Shalom Aleichem on the on the mandolin, and I realized that that major minor kind of thing with some of that uh, some of that uh, uh, secular uh, Jewish music. There's some, there's some interesting blues stuff buried in there also. If you listen to Reverend Gary Davis's uh, Hesitation Blues, which is in the key of C, but it starts out with an A minor to E major change. Nickel is a nickel, dime is a dime, and then it goes. She won't mind. Goes into C seventh, and now it's in C major. That 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 Eastern European harmonic minor thing—that's a really traditional Jewish kind of thing—and there it is in a blues song. Wow. Yeah. Well. Well. I know we're in the the middle of a, a great talk here, but the Zoom meeting's about to about to time out. So I want to. Okay. I want to thank you again for for talking to me because it's just been. I'm Sam, and I hope you enjoyed that interview with Yorma Kalkinen, an incredible guitarist from Jefferson Airplane and Hot Tuna, just a and a really really nice guy as well. So. So if you enjoyed that interview, make sure to check out my back pages on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other podcasting platforms to listen to other great interviews just like this one.